I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings and chapter 8. That's on page 309 in the church Bible, page 309. 1 Kings in chapter 8, and you will see immediately this is a very long chapter, 66 verses, and I'm not going to attempt to cover that in one sermon. I'm not sure how many sermons. But tonight we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. I'd like to read that now in your hearing. 1 Kings 8. Let's hear the word of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place, in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. With chapter 8, we have reached the greatest day in the reign of King Solomon. It is the day on which the temple is dedicated to the Lord. Everything that has happened prior to this has been building up to this great day. Even from the end of David's reign when he had desired to build a temple and was told that he could not do so. But he collected many of the materials for the temple. And this now is the culmination of all the years that Solomon has spent organising nearly 200,000 men the stone, the timber, the gold, and the bronze for the house of the Lord. Now the temple was completed. Now it is to be dedicated. We find in verse 1 that it is a day of national assembly. The elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, they came to King Solomon in Jerusalem they might bring up the Ark 
of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. It was a day of feasting. It was in the seventh month, which was the month of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, whether this was at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, we are not told. But that feast was a way of remembering their time in the wilderness. But that time was now over. They had come and they had permanent rest in the land. And after the temple is dedicated, there is more feasting. Fourteen days of feasting, according to verse 65. It was a great occasion, not just a day, but a period of time lasting two weeks. It was a day of blessing. Blessing God. Blessing the nation. It was a day of prayer. It was a day when there were sacrifices that could not be numbered for multitude, according to verse 5. Solomon's prayer, from verse 22 to verse 53, lies at the heart. It is centre stage in chapter 8. In fact, Solomon is the key figure in chapter 8. Much of this chapter concerns what he says and his actions. He assembles the elders and the heads of the tribe. He blesses the assembly and leads them in blessing the Lord. He is the one who stands before the altar, spreads out his hands to heaven and pleads with God that he would forgive the nation and forgive men and women when they sin against God. He is the one who again at the end of this ceremony blesses the entire assembly and then organises a 14 day feast following further sacrifices. Yet it is not Solomon. It is not Solomon who unites Israel in their worship and in the dedication of the temple. It is not the human presence, even of a great king. It is the divine presence. It is God's presence. He is there. He dwells among his people. Back in Deuteronomy and chapter 12 and verse 11, God says there through his servant Moses, then, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. It is in the place that the Lord has chosen, Jerusalem, the chosen place where he has made his name to abide. And despite all the outward glory and beauty of the temple, without the presence of the Lord, it is empty. It's a vain structure, like an empty shell that has no kernel in it. What would the temple be, that building be, however outwardly glorious, without the God who is their living Redeemer, present in their midst? Or to bring it up to date for ourselves, what is the Church of Christ apart from the presence 
of the once crucified, now risen and exalted and ever living Lord. It is the presence of God among his people that is crucial. Other nations built their temples and their palaces and named them after their gods and their kings. For those gods are nothing less than human imagination. They are idols, they are nothing. This is the temple of the living God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who appeared in glory on Mount Sinai. And now who is to appear in glory in his temple, among his people, in Jerusalem. And the God who is to display his glory in his Son, Jesus Christ. The God who is to display his glory in the world that is to come in the new Jerusalem. This is the God who is real. This is the true and living God. All the other gods are idols and are nothing. That is what makes this passage unique. And I want this evening to look with you at three aspects of this divine presence. There is the ark. There are God's covenant words on the stone tablets in the ark. And then there is the glory of the Lord that filled the house of the Lord. The ark, the covenant words, the glory. First of all, the ark. The ark is the symbol of God's special presence. There was a national assembly with Solomon at the head and the intention was to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. There it is in verse 1. The Ark had been placed there for safekeeping since it had been returned from captivity. Remember in the days of Samuel, in the days of Eli, it had been taken captive by the Philistines. Then it had been returned. And then David had brought it up into Jerusalem. You remember what happened to Azar and Ahio, because they were not priests. They brought it up, and the oxen stumbled, and they reached out their hands, and put their hands into the ark, and they perished. And David had to go through the whole procedure again, properly, and use the appointed priests. Now the priests bring up the ark. We read that in verse 3. It is the ark of the Lord, or the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It is the tabernacle of meeting. It is brought up, and it is going to be placed in the most inner room in the temple, the most holy place, under the wings of the gold cherubim. The ark is a golden chest, made of wood and then covered with gold, with poles on the side and loops through which the the poles went and then it would be carried by the priests. And then it would be placed in the inner place, the most holy place, there with the mercy seat. And there, on the day of atonement, The high priest would go in with the blood of the sacrifices and would sprinkle the ark 
and the most holy place with that blood in order to atone for his sins and for the sins of the people. That was the way that Israel was accepted by God. The ark was a symbol of God's presence among them. And now it is placed in the temple where God says, here I have placed my name. This place and in particular the Ark of the Covenant. This place is the location of my special presence. God is everywhere present. Now we cannot fully understand all this. But God is everywhere present. But the place, the temple and the Ark is the symbol of his special presence. This is the place that he has chosen to dwell among his people. God says, this is my chosen dwelling place on the earth. Not among any of the other nations, but among you, Israel. This is where I will meet with you, my people, and you will meet with me. This is the place of worship. This is the place of sacrifice. This is the place for atonement for sin. Here am I fulfilling my promises. This is the place I have chosen. You are my chosen people. This is my chosen dwelling place. This is the place where heaven and earth meet. God is there. Meeting with his people. He's there in space. He's there in time. And he's not inhibited in any way. There's no compromising of his holiness. And his transcendence. He dwells in the most holy place. And there the ark is the symbol of his presence. This is the God who has redeemed Israel. This is the God who has entered into covenant with them. This is the God who has revealed his name. And when he reveals his name and his character and his attributes, they fall down and worship him. This is God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, who is present with them. He's entered into his covenant. He's sworn his oaths. He's made his promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell among you. This is intimate fellowship. It's not just a figment of imagination. God's presence is real. God is real. His presence is real. The temple is real. The ark is real. The most holy place is real. The sacrifices are real. The prayers here are real. This is not pagan worship. This is the God who has made himself known. This is the God who has placed his name there in that temple among his people. Otherwise Israel is just like the rest of the nations. Great buildings dedicated to all kinds of gods but no real presence. Because those gods are not real. They are make-believe gods. But the God of Israel is no make-believe God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is their redeemer. He is the one who has saved them. He is the one who has given them his word. He is the one who has given them his promises. And he comes and he dwells among his people. The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It is significant that when our Lord Jesus Christ came, 
He was and came as the Word made flesh who tabernacled, who pitched his tent among us. And he makes atonement. Not on the day of atonement, repeatedly, but he makes atonement on that one single day of atonement when he hung on a cross at Calvary, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, once and for all. And now the Spirit of Christ comes. He dwells in and among the people of God. The people of God are like living stones in a temple. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the chief stone in that building, that temple. But you see, the principle is here. Here in 1 Kings chapter 8. God is among his people. God dwells, Christ dwells among his people. The spirit of Christ dwells among his people. That is what makes us what we are. The church of Jesus Christ. Without his presence we are nothing. And without his presence the temple in Israel is nothing. But it is because he is there. God is there. And just as the special presence of God made Israel different from all the nations, so the presence of Jesus Christ, the presence of God by his Spirit, makes the church different from every other assembly of men. We read in Revelations chapter 1 and 2 and 3 that Christ walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. He is present with his people. How aware are you of this priceless privilege and blessing? That when we gather as the people of God, that when the church gathers here on earth, we are anticipating heaven. And when we gather here on earth, what is it that we desire? Who have we come to meet? We've not come to meet with one another, first and foremost. We have come to meet with the living God. We have come to meet with the God who speaks from his word. He is present with us. And this is an anticipation of that day when the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and God says the dwelling of God will be with men. And on that day we shall be and we shall enjoy that presence forever and forever. But do we realise and grasp what we are doing this evening? We are in the presence of God. If we are the people of God, if we are the church of Jesus Christ, then God is here. That is what makes us what we are. What constraints then that places upon our holiness, upon our purity, upon our whole approach. We said earlier from Psalm 50, there were those who came unthinkingly to worship God. Sadly, friends, that is too often true of us. We forget the one whom we come to meet with. 
It is none other than the living God who is pleased to dwell among his people. The temple is gone. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. But the presence of God is no less real. It is not visible in the same kind of way as the glory cloud as we will see in a moment. But it is no less real. When we gather around the Lord's table later tonight, Christ is present. He is the unseen guest who is here. He is the one who invites us to come, bids us come, remember him in that specific way. So there is the ark, the symbol of God's special presence. Then secondly, there is in the ark the ten words of God's covenant. Verse 9, Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now Horeb is but another name for Mount Sinai. The ark contained the ten words, the ten commands or the ten words of God's covenant. When Moses was on the mountain, on Sinai, on Horeb, God gave to Moses two stone tablets. God made a covenant with his people and he gave them his law, the ten words of the covenant, the ten commandments. Israel possessed God's covenant words in order that they might know how to love and serve the God who had saved them out of the land of Egypt. And those two stone tablets were special. They were written, we are told, in Exodus 32 and verse 15. They are written on both sides with the writing of God engraved on the tablets. We are told elsewhere they were written with the finger of God. There was something very special about those ten words. Israel is the redeemed people of God. They live under his word. He is their sovereign Lord. He is over them. He has redeemed them. They are under his authority. And he will then express his will in these ten words, these ten commandments. For God is the covenant Lord and they may not just live as they see fit. They have been redeemed by God. They are for God. They are to live to God. And in order to do so, they are to live according to those words. Now some people today, when they hear about the Ten Commandments, they hear about the law, they say, well, that doesn't apply to us anymore. We're under Christ. We're not under law, we're under grace. And they raise their hands in horror if they are told, we are subject today as New Covenant Christians to God's moral laws. Those who say those things say it's no longer relevant, it's legalism. It's Old Testament religion. It's going back to salvation by works. It's foreign to grace. 
And there are some who want to abolish not only the fourth commandment with regard to the Lord's Day Sabbath, but all of the commandments, and say they are of no relevance and no help to living the Christian life. And some will go so far as to say, I've read only a review of the book only this week, which says precisely this. The reason why the church lacks joy is because we've become a bunch of legalists who keep the law of God. It's not Christ-centered, it's not full of the Spirit of God. Now I could mention to you three or four recent books, commentaries, by evangelical publishers, where authors adopt that approach in different ways. They say we have nothing now to do with the law. It's a common error. It is a serious mistake. And I would go so far to say it is one of the lies of Satan to confuse the church today and to deceive the church. To live by the standards of God's law is not legalism. If we insisted on keeping the law in order to be saved from our sins and made acceptable to God, that is legalism. But that is not what we are saying. What do we say in answer to those who want to do away with the law? Well, we tell them this from the Old Testament, and then I'll give you something from the New Testament. We tell them these ten words were given in the context of God's redeeming love and grace. This is the Lord who redeemed them. He is giving them his word. He is their covenant Lord. They are his servants. He has brought them out of the land of Egypt. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has authority over them. He is present with them. They belong to him. They are his son. They are his people. He has set his love upon them. And he's saying, this is how you love me in return. By keeping my covenant. He delivers them before he makes any demands of them. There is his electing love and mercy before there are any laws and commands. He redeems them before he lays down any requirements of them. He sets his people free and then says to them as their sovereign Lord, this is how you enjoy your freedom. This is how you enjoy fellowship with me. The commandments that are given to them by God are unto life. These commandments were written with the finger of God. And here they are in the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place. Now some may say, well that's still Old Testament. It's not very full of Christ. It's not very full of the Spirit of God. Well, Christ does set us free from sin. And he does send the Spirit of God into our hearts. But he does not abolish the law. In fact, if you turn with me to Hebrews and chapter 8 and verse 10, and to me this passage is conclusive. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. It compares the two covenants, the old, the first, and the new covenant. And in verse 10, With regard to the new covenant, God says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Where, was the word, where were the words of the first covenant written? On the tables of stone. Written with the finger of God. In the new covenant God says no longer on stone tablets but I will write my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Well, what are those laws? The same laws that were written on the stone tablets. God does not change his laws and his commandments. What he does is write them no longer on stone tablets, but on the tablets of our hearts. But it is the law of God. It is the commandments of God. And there is no then contradiction with the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who indwells us is the Spirit of God who writes those laws on our hearts and on our minds. The law cannot justify you. The law cannot sanctify you in and of itself. But both in the Old Testament, here in Solomon's Temple, where the Ark of the Covenant contains the stone tablets, and under the New Covenant, God tells us he cares very much about the way his people love him, serve him, worship him. He cares very much whether you worship any other God besides him. He cares very much whether you create other gods. He cares very much whether you take his name in vain. He has put his name here. This is where his name dwells. And if we take his name in vain, he is going to be concerned. This is the place where God's name dwells. He is going to be concerned whether we keep the Lord's Day Sabbath. He's concerned whether we honour our parents. He's concerned whether we hate men and women and kill them. Whether we are faithful to our husband, to our wife, or whether we allow our eyes and our bodies to be used by anybody for any particular reason. He cares whether we uphold marriage. He cares whether we steal, whether we lie, whether we bear false witness. He cares whether we covet. He cared then and he cares now. This law is important. It is God's word. God is among us and he is not divorced from his word. He is the same covenant law. And this law he writes on the hearts and minds of those who are his people. By his spirit. And we have a new heart then committed to God and to following his ways. We do not keep the law of God perfectly, but that is the pattern, that is the rule for how we are to live and to please God. By the power of the spirit and because Christ has set us free from the curse of the law. How can we say we truly love God? How could we say that we serve and worship him if we low say, we don't need the ten words of the commandments anymore. They bind us to a joyless Christian life. Put us in bonds. Well, they put us in bonds only if we make them the rule by which 
we are accepted by God. That's bondage, because we can never attain to the right standard. We are dependent upon the righteousness of Christ to fulfil all the demands of the law. But we will not abandon the law of God. It was there, it was an indication of God's presence. His word, his commandments, his ten words of the covenant. God is present and his authoritative word stands. But then there is a third thing. We've looked at the ark as a symbol of his presence. We've considered the commandments, the words of the covenant, and now we consider thirdly, the third aspect of his presence is his glory. The glory of God's presence. Verses 10 and 11. It came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. When God occupied this temple, the priests had to get out because of the overwhelming glory of God. It says the glory of the Lord filled the house. There was this cloud, sometimes called the Shekinah cloud. That's a literal, that's a transliteration from the Hebrew. It had happened before. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34, when the tabernacle was set up in Moses' day, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and they had to get out. They could not live with the glory of God. The glory of the Lord was visible and felt. And there was a fear and a dread that drove them out because they could not live with the revealed glory of God as he took up his residence in that temple. It was a sign of his approval. But at the same time they realised that God with whom they had to do was far greater than any men and combination of men and greater than the king, great though he was. And the glory of the Lord always marks his presence. It was the same glory that Moses and Israel saw on Mount Sinai. The dark cloud that covered that mountain when God spoke to Moses and gave him the ten words of the covenant and gave him those stone tablets. Now, here is this clear and visible sign of God's presence. His gracious presence filling the temple. It is gracious even though they cannot live, as it were, in close proximity to that glory. God has taken up residence, his chosen dwelling place, the God of Sinai, the God who had led them out of Egypt, the God of the covenant, their redeemer, their lawgiver. And this dwelling and the glory cloud that filled that temple is proof of God's grace towards Israel, now in Jerusalem, now on this day of dedication. Why do I say it is a gracious presence? Because what it represents is this. Here is the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the great and eternal God, the one true and living God, 
here he is seeking out men and women in order that they might know him and worship him. He is seeking out a people for himself. He drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. They were driven out of that immediate blessed presence that they had enjoyed, that had been destroyed by sin. And ever since Adam and Eve had been driven out of the garden, God has planned a new way, a way by which he may come to men and women, and men and women may know him and love him and serve him. He makes himself known. He began, as it were, with Abraham. He revealed himself to Abraham. What did Abraham do? He built an altar there and he worshipped. And that principle then is carried on when God makes himself known. A tabernacle is built and God is worshipped. That is the meeting place on earth between the God of heaven and men and women on the earth. And here in the temple, precisely the same thing is happening. And it's made possible because God provides an atonement for sin. In the old covenant it is by all these animal sacrifices. But he gives his word, he gives his laws, he gives his commands, he gives his promises, he gives his oaths. He is establishing a meeting place of God with men. And he takes the initiative. Therefore it is gracious. He is under no obligation to make a way for sinful men and women to come back to God. If he left us, as it were, driven out of the garden like Adam and Eve and left us to ourselves and to our sin, not one of us could complain. But here is grace. Here is grace. Here is God seeking worshippers. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? Or Samaritan woman, rather, at the well? He said, God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. And he has continued to seek worshippers down to this present day. And here is Solomon full of joy. He says, this is what God said he would do. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. Verse 12. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. Now there is mystery here. The cloud is visible. The glory is felt and is visible. And the priests have to leave the temple. But God is not visible. They do not see God in his very essence. He conceals the blaze of his glory in the cloud. He conceals the beauty of his holiness in the cloud. And yet he dwells in that house with his full glory concealed. And you say, how, how can this be? How can, I, how can I get my mind around this? Has God undergone some change? Is he less than God? He's not confined by the, the four walls of the most holy place. How can he be confined to a building that then is made with human hands? Well, God is not measured. He's not confined. He's not measured by the size of the temple. Solomon is well aware of that. Verse 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. God is up there and down here, if I may put it that way. The temple is no limit upon God. It does not localise him or his activity. This, rather, we are to understand as divine condescension, divine grace. I say it again, God is seeking out sinful men and women to make himself known to them that they will love him and serve him. He redeems them as he makes himself known to them. Until God does that, we are just like the rest of the human race. But when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham worshipped him. And when God spoke to Abraham, immediately he became a different man. Otherwise he would remain the worshipper of the sun and the moon and the stars like the rest of the people in Ur of the Chaldees. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no diminishing of his glory when he assumed human nature and tabernacled among us. Wesley put it, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He was everything that God is. And John could write, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, when he took flesh and blood, was everything that God was. No lessening, no loss of his glory, no loss no compromising of his divinity. This was grace. This was salvation. It was done in order that we might know this God. For were he to come in his full blazing glory, we would perish. Had God, had, had God come in that temple, and had those priests remained in that temple, is it going too far to say had they remained there they would have died and perished in the full blaze of the glory of God? They got out. But God was there. God displaying his love and his sovereign interest in men and women. God displaying that he is great and he is glorious clothed in majesty and beauty and power far beyond anything that our minds can fully comprehend. But a God who makes himself known and a God who condescends to dwell among men. That's what this book is about. That's what this temple is about. That is what Jesus Christ is about. That is what salvation is about. The divine presence with and among men and women saved by his grace. There are three things I want to conclude with by way of application. In the light of what we have seen about God's presence with men, be humbled. Be humbled. All of this is profoundly humbling. We are finite creatures of the dust. 
If we live for 70 years, three score and ten, then that is well. If we live longer than that, then that is even further sign of God's blessing. But what is 70 years compared with the everlasting God? A thousand years in his sight is nothing. What then is 70 years but a span, but a hand breadth? We are finite creatures, the dust of the earth. We are fallen creatures, hopeless, helpless, guilty, vile, subject to death. If we had gone on as we had lived before we became Christians, gone on in our darkness, gone on in our ignorance, what then would become of us? Would we have turned to God? Sometimes I wonder whether we really believe that perhaps we might have turned to God in some moment. I think we might somehow have eventually found out God by our searching and somehow climbed up to God. My Bible doesn't give me any indication that that is true in any way, shape or form. If I know God, it's because God has made himself known to me. If you know God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, it's because Jesus Christ has been made known to you. It is God who takes the initiative. It is God who seeks fallen men and women. It is God who desires to dwell with sinful men and women and provides atonement for sin. And it is deeply humbling. Look at the idolatry. Look at the godlessness that is in this world. Look at the darkness of this world. Don't just look at the Athens of Paul's day. Full of idols. Ephesus. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. But look at London. Look at Brighton. Look at Crawley. Look at Maidenbow. The crash materialism. The fascination with the new age. Look at the round of the moral decay and decadence of our society. Despite the digital age in which we live and all the knowledge and information that is at our fingertips, you do not find men and women with the knowledge of God at their fingertips. The darkness still remains. In Western Europe, this is a dark age indeed. Because men and women are abandoning God. Therefore, it is deeply humbling for us to realise that if we know God, this is grace. This is grace. Sheer grace to us. What makes you different from your neighbour? What makes you different to the people you work with? What makes you different to some of the members even of your own family? It's God's sovereign interest in you. He set his love upon you. And he's made himself known to you. A finite, fallen creature. It's profoundly humbling. Therefore be humbled. But also, be thankful. Be thankful. Because God has made himself known to you. The Lord of glory, the King of heaven, 
He, if I may put it this way, has made all the running with regard to your salvation. It is His sovereign love. It is His seeking. It is His willingness to dwell among men. It is His willingness to send Jesus Christ. It is the willingness of Jesus Christ to come and assume human nature. And His willingness to die in our place. And His willingness to send the Holy Spirit. And the willingness of the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. And all to show us the blessings of our salvation, which Christ has purchased for us. These are the things that fill our hearts with joy and with gladness. And to obey the commandments of God when we have been blessed in such a way is no burden to us. It ought to be the delight of our hearts. We delight in the law of God. Because in that way we love our God, even though it is imperfect. Therefore we are to be thankful because God has bestowed the riches of blessings upon us in his Son, Jesus Christ. We have eternal life. God is our God and we are his people. What greater blessing is there? That will be the blessing of the new Jerusalem. That will be our song. And Christ will be in the centre of our song and in the centre of our vision in the great new Jerusalem. Be humbled. Be thankful. And then be encouraged. Be encouraged. Israel was richly blessed. And this God who came and made himself known and dwelt among his people. This is the God who had revealed himself to Moses some 500 years before, and to Israel, and before that to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the God who is still working out his plans and his purposes. The God who some uh, some millennium later sent his son Jesus Christ and then on the day of Pentecost sent the spirit into this world and here 2,000 years later the gospel comes and still comes to us this is the living God who is working out his plans and his purposes and that is overwhelmingly encouraging when we look around us in this world and see the godlessness we must remind ourselves that there is a God in heaven who is working out his gracious purposes. And it is the persistence of that grace down through the generations that is so heartening. He dwells in the highest heavens. And yet he comes and dwells among men and is not defiled. For Jesus Christ provides atonement for sin and reconciles us unto our God. The God who brought this world into being shone his light into the darkness. We read in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who was shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When the gospel comes, that is the light of heaven shining upon your heart, shining into your heart, enlightening your eyes so that you see 
and you behold Jesus Christ, your Saviour. There are many of you sitting here tonight who know precisely what I'm talking about. There was a day when you were in darkness and you did not know this Jesus. And now the light has shone, penetrated into your hearts, into your minds. And you say, I know him. And wonder of wonders, I love him. I love him. But I love him because he has first loved me. I know him. And that's grace. I know him because he has first loved me. And when we get to heaven, and when we gaze upon Christ in all his glory, then we shall love him with a perfect and an unsinning heart. We shall be able to praise him without those lapses of concentration, without those distractions in our minds and those distracting thoughts that sometimes come in and interrupt our prayers and our worship. We shall love him perfectly. We shall see him and we shall see God in his glory. In that place, the dwelling of God is with men. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's the wonder of grace. Brothers and sisters, be humbled, be thankful, be encouraged. This is our God. As we come to eat and drink at the table, we come to remember Christ. He is made atonement for our sin. He is the one who has made that way back to God. We come then with thankfulness of heart, with awe and with wonder to gaze upon our Saviour who gave his body and shed his blood for us. Amen.